This is LAB History Time. Follow me on a new historical adventure. With top interviews and discussions... Bringing you the very best historical stories from around the world. So step back in time with LAB History Time. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of History Time. Uh, today I'm welcoming back Aidan Miller to the show, uh, who's going to be discussing post-colonialism with me and thinking about how we can make history curriculums, particularly on British Empire topics, um, more reflective of the kind of truth of the scenarios that we're talking about. But first I thought it would be um, interesting to talk about some of uh, David Olashoga's books that I've been uh, reading recently. Um, I'm finding, yeah, the topics about the British Empire particularly pertinent at the moment in terms of how to redo uh, curriculum so that we actually focus on the reality, not only of indigenous populations, but kind of avoiding... Uh, debates that have been redone too many uh, times with a kind of imperialistic um, attitude towards them. Um, and Dave Olashoga is really good at um, kind of highlighting the ways in which um, ethnic minorities within European history have been largely ignored. Um, so in his book that accompanied the Civilization series on the BBC, um, which was very, very wide ranging, it kind of uh, had mixed... Um, critical reception um, mainly because I think they were just trying to cover too many countries without enough time to get into kind of the actual history behind um, each one but his book um, First Contact and the Cult of Progress is very interesting because he um, shows for example these incredible paintings um, from Lisbon in Portugal where um, you know black West Africans are shown as crusading knights on horseback um, and you know not in the kind of uh, ways in which sometimes uh, we feel like they are always represented in European uh, sources as slaves but actually the reality is that they could hold a wide variety of um, positions Um, and yeah David Olashoga is trying to really um, you know, open our eyes a little bit as historians, I think, to looking at overlooked um, sources and put a little bit more of that colour back into history that was always there and, uh, you know, needs to be um, talked about. I think he sums this up quite nicely at the end of his book when um, he says that, you know, art um, is part of a single human imagination um, that yes it differs between uh, countries but all art is a product of humanity um and you know that's what we um should be focusing on rather than thinking of what came before or after or you know that actually they're all interplaying with each other and are all pretty interconnected in history so without further ado let's head over to our interview with aiden hey aiden welcome back it's lovely to have you back 
Always a pleasure, always a pleasure. <laughs> um, so today we're going to take um, a look at a, a quite a different topic compared to uh, tube trains, like we were talking about uh, last yeah. time, but actually kind of in the same period in a way, right? Um, because we're going to talk about um, empire and post-colonialism. So um, do you want to explain like what, what is post-colonialism? What, what does it mean? Um, I guess as a historian, I would say the impact uh, probably long term from the 50s right up until the present day that the British Empire specifically has had on its former colonies. Yeah, for sure. Um, and in all the other colonies, I guess, of other European uh, empires. Um, but we're going to focus on Britain today as that's where we are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, from your point of view, like as a black British man, what do you kind of feel about kind of the post-colonial world in Britain? Um, it's such a wide um, subject that I've always constantly changing my opinions on it. Um, I think, you know, it's changed over time. I think being from a half African background and a half Caribbean background has shaped my opinions of it. Um, I think visiting Ghana uh, and India over the past two years has also shaped my opinion on it. And I think, you know, when I'm teaching history, uh, the way it's been taught has often affected how I've reflected on it. And I don't think when I was a student, it was taught to me in a very uh, wide ranging way. So uh, uh, my initial opinions were quite limited. So in, in what um, way was it kind of taught when you were at school that... It's, it's kind of just in this very, like, I'm sure you can relate to this, like, oh, British Empire, good or bad? Make a decision. Here's some good, here's some bad. But we're not really going to talk about the bad stuff because there's quite a lot of bad stuff. We're just going to talk about a little bit of bad stuff. And well, here's all the good stuff. And that's it. it. It's also kind of a strange, like, dichotomy to use, isn't it? To have, like, you know, how can you rationalise, you know, murder and pillaging and all of this and exploitation of other people and then be like, oh, but we built railways or we had this great infrastructure or, you know, like it, it, it's not actually something that should be weighed on the same scale. They are just so different. And I 100% agree. And I think when you look at the rhetoric of this country in the past, you know, five years of Brexit, they actually pay no you know, homage or understanding to the empire. Even when we teach World War One, you teach all of World War One, and then some schools have like, oh, we've got an extra lesson, so let's just do uh, the empire in World War One, like it's an additional thing, as if, as opposed to it being like a you know a large part contributing factor to the daily part of it. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, we call them the First World War and the Second World War, and they really were world wars. Yeah, we always kind of focused on the, you know, European or sometimes the kind of Pacific uh, spheres of war, don't yeah. we? But like, I mean, in David Olasoga's new book, um, the what the World's War, like, you know, he draws attention to the fact that actually the whole empire is involved in helping. Britain to, you know, defeat its enemies. Yeah, and I think, you know, a few years back, I think um, 2018, I went to Passchendaele uh, to do some, uh, it was a 100-year anniversary of the Battle of Passchendaele. And, you know, what made Passchendaele so important and special was that um, it was mainly fought, in fact, it was the battle where they had the biggest amount of um, 
soldiers from India and a lot of were from South Africa and across the empire. But I never learned about Passchendaele really until I was at Passchendaele. Um, and I think had I learned and and also I think, you know, as a black British person, you don't ever view yourself as part of British history unless it's the like slavery element of it. Um, and I think that is a, a massive legacy that is left. And I think, um, you know, again, when you look at recent events, uh, a rhetoric has always been, you know, these people come to this country and they do this. And, you know, maybe if people understood that actually those same people coming to your country form 44% of the NHS um, and have helped you to win or helped the country to win wars and provided the cotton and silk that made the Industrial Revolution, uh, maybe you would look at their contribution in a different way. Mm, definitely. I mean, you you mentioned earlier that you'd recently visited um, Ghana and that had kind of, you know, changed your perspective on kind of, you know, post-colonialism and empire in general. Like what in Ghana kind of made you have a different opinion? So there's a famous quote, uh, sorry, there's a famous quote where it says, um, before uh, they came to Africa, we had land and they had the Bible. And now it's, they have uh, the land and we have the Bible. And it's really interesting when you look at a lot of African countries, especially uh, Ghana being one of the most religious, you know, in terms of Christianity, uh, that is probably the biggest um, long lasting impact of empire. And I think, you know, religion is something that a lot of people believe in, but just removing a whole country's religion and saying, your religion's rubbish, this, you know, westernised European religion is actually the real thing and the best thing for you. And going round Ghana and there were just churches and churches and churches and churches and missionary schools. And, and you know, one of the arguments is that the empire brought education, which um, it did, but it also brought education from a very specific viewpoint. And actually, you know, when, when those same people from Ghana came to England in the 50s and 60s, they were banned from Catholic churches. So again, it's that like paradox of, yes, we're giving you all of those things in your country, but when you bring those same things that we've given to you back to our country, we're not accepting it uh, to you. I think when you look at Ghana, you know, between the, the the area where I'm from, Kamasi, which is in the Ashanti province, province and Kamasi, the soon as the British Empire left, they just cut the trains. So there was no, there is no real rail supply. Uh, or transport from one part to the other. And the only reason they actually had that was to allow uh, produce to get to the coast as quickly as possible to be imported back to, to Britain. So yes, those things were given, but as soon as the empire finished or independence was gained, all of those commodities that were given were just cut. And I think when you look at a lot of African countries, Ghana not being one so much, you know, there's so much corruption uh, within the different people and, you know, ethnic um, problems between different groups. And that all comes as part of the post-colonial um, legacy. And, it, you know, it's quite sad to see that the reason why that's happened is because of what happened during that, that period. Yeah, I mean, the boundaries between the countries that were drawn during, like, the scramble for Africa have always been something that have, you know, drawn criticism, haven't they, for the kind of divisions of communities along arbitrary lines according to the European powers um, yeah definitely yeah. I, I mean going back to education and the way that you know empire studies are taught in schools 
I think it's uh, you know a really really interesting point. You know, you kind of almost uh, we're mentioning that on in, in quite a lot of curriculums, it ends up becoming quite tokenistic of having you know like either a separate lesson for you know women or people of color or you yeah. know only only talking. Um, uh, about people of colour during um, Black History Month, for instance, and then all of a sudden you hear about it. But actually, you know, these, uh, you know, people have always been part of the story throughout time. They've just been kind of ignored, haven't they? I mean, you know, Miranda Kaufman's Black Tudors, but when they're talking about mm. John Blank and yeah. Henry's well, trumpeter, do you want to yeah, yeah. <laughs> go and... Well, I think it was quite interesting because we were, I was teaching um, the Tudors to my year eight class earlier in the year. And I just dropped in a lesson. I just put a picture up and I said, you know, what guy, what can you guys see in this picture? And they were like, oh, there's a black guy. And I think initially that challenged their first stereotype because people feel like they're, or think there were no black people in England until, you know, after slavery were in actually lots. Yeah, from that same Black Tudors book that I got as a gift um, from my last school, uh, that 10% of the population of London was uh, or had African descent. But what I love about the story of John Blanker is everybody knows who Henry VIII is. Everybody has a really clear understanding of his personality and what type of person he has. And if you look at um, some of the pictures and portraits, you'll see this black uh, trumpeter in the background, one of four, and he wasn't being paid the same amount as the rest of the other trumpeters. And he found this out and he wrote a letter to Henry VIII and said, look, Henry, I'm doing the same job as these people. I think you should give me a pay rise. And you haven't been paying me right for about two or three years. So I'd love for you to backdate my pay. Now, from what we know about Henry VIII, and how he treated his wives, this, you know, random African descent person asking him for a pay rise and backdated pay, you'd think he'd say no. Yeah, but, or, or chop off his head potentially. I guess. Exactly. <laughs> and he said yes, and he was very apologetic. And, you know, when John Blanca got um, married, Henry VIII was one of the first people to send him a wedding gift. And just by having those figures in your day-to-day -day lesson, you know, you can look at Henry VIII and you can add it in and you can embed it. Um, kids then see uh, African um, people, peoples, as part of British history and not as this tokenistic add-ons like you mentioned. Yeah, and like it, it doesn't need to be made a massive point that, oh, no. he is black. It's just, yeah. it's another person that was living in Tudor England or when you're doing mm. the Romans, you know, the recent studies that have shown that, you know, again, people of African descent living in Roman Britain that, you know, there've yeah. been people here of colour for, you know, thousands of years. It's mm. not like something that's just um, kind of new, but it's about making it like more visible, I guess, isn't yeah. it? Like where you it know, should I be. Um, so if we're talking about how to kind of improve studies of empire in schools, if we, you know, want to move away from this kind of quite damaging, good or bad, um, debate which quite frankly shouldn't be a debate that mm. you know killing someone why are we debating that that's a good or a bad thing or you know kind of like you know instilling inferiority in an, in another country shouldn't shouldn't be something that's kind of like up for debate but in, mm. in a you know some of the uh universities that are doing um empire studies like the university of exeter they kind of like have more of a focus on theories of empire and that is the debate about whether empire was motivated by money or violence or race religion um sex and gender 
or propaganda or power and that's probably a more kind of a better starting point in schools I think those headings really summarise colonisation excellently especially that of power and propaganda Um, Mm. nice bit of alliteration there for you but um, (laughs) I yeah because I guess the long lasting effects of the empire or empires has been that the power and the propaganda machines are still rolling for both of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of power, you know, the, I- the ideology behind, you know, um, the white race all started from uh, empire. And that is something that, look, you know, has, when you look at Hitler, it, he was really inspired by the British empire and he, he, he wanted Germany to have its own little Britain uh, empire. And I think the idea of propaganda, like you said, it 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 it's it fed into the early ideas of nationalism pre World War One, mm. and I don't think European countries, I don't think we have ever shaken away from that idea of nationalism. Um, and I think for countries, the irony is countries that were part of the empire, they have also had to create their own new identities of nationalism to counteract their post-colonial pasts. I don't know if well, you agree. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think propaganda is a really, really interesting one because, um, you know, of course, th- there were many people living in the British Empire, whether they were British or, you know, otherwise, that, you know, did things in order to genuinely help you know like it, it mm. wasn't like everybody was motivated mm. by violence or money and this kind of thing and actually yeah like some of that propaganda of you know go to a new place and have this adventure and you know kind of you know actually you can kind of see the 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 impact like how powerful that message could have been and still is i guess for you know you and i think um, you know, yeah, a good friend of mine sent me a podcast by Phil Wang, who um, was looking at the impact that that had on his own parents coming from England and I think it was Malaysia. And yeah. his mom just went, you know, she saw, I think it was an archaeology job. Um, yeah, yeah, it was not. Yeah, it was. Good, great job. And uh, she just went because she wanted to do it. And it was an interesting, exciting, and she didn't realise that she was going to meet a Malaysian man. And his dad, you know, felt so privileged to be part of the empire. So like you said, there were, you know, when you look at India, you had the Mensabis, women who were just going to be with their husbands. Mm-hmm. And and actually a lot of them didn't even like being in those countries. But like, so- I, I think that's, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a really interesting aspect of empire that's not looked at as well, I think, isn't it? That kind of like very complex relationship that's not always kind of, mm. you know, violent but like yeah. it, 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 the impact of it is, is, is so you know wide, wide ranging in, in yeah. time span of its impact as well um, yeah. but also I think that the countries that they went to is it's changes like people who went to North America initially were fleeing religious persecution in England mm. whereas people who were going to India East India Company the people that set that up they were just going for profit mm. so different motivation yeah although interesting that yeah like the the fleeing from europe and 
religious persecution in Europe and then supposedly, you know, kind of tolerance being one of the yeah. kind of like uh, mo- uh, unifying things, things. but yeah. actually it, it, yeah kind of almost originating from one of my intolerance like, yeah one of my favorite people you know william penn who set up uh the, well created founded the state of pennsylvania he was a quaker and um he they were not treated well at all in england um but yeah he went up to set set his own state uh, country i guess at the time up and i think we don't always look at the different types of people that went in terms of economic socioeconomic background a lot of working class um soldiers were forced to go to africa and um, which was often known as the white man's grave because they died from such tropical diseases and they probably didn't even want to go themselves knowing that they probably were going to die um, mm. but obviously those higher up probably just needed them to go to be soldiers so like you yeah, said so the, these complex stories are also things that need to be kind of like uncovered and, yeah. and, and debated in 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 more detail as well i think i don't think we look at um that i think maybe answer coming back to your question earlier about how to how it would be taught i think we need to maybe teachers of history should look at 10 different types of story of empire so look at 10 different individuals they could be fictional um and be like this person went to india and this was his experience this person went to africa this was his experience this slave came uh from uh went across the middle passage to america and that was their experience this person in india was a servant this was their experience and looking yeah, at it's how- done more via yeah the experiences of, yeah, of, of so. people and yeah okay we mentioned um just then about uh, kind of, yeah, like soldiers um, going to different parts of the empire. And we mentioned before that um, about people being recruited from mm. the colonies into uh, the British army as well. When we, yeah, like during the First World War, where there was like a kind of common enemy and it was more about kind of, you know, rallying the empire in order to defeat an mm-hmm. external enemy and then there's almost an element of like actually after the first world war ends and then later the second world war that the enemy becomes the imperial power doesn't it the mm-hmm. actual colonies are like hang on a second actually why are you if we've just been fighting an enemy that was supposedly trying to dominate other countries in Europe then actually you're kind of dominating us and that kind of drives the you know desire for independence um, as well you know because if the empires were suppressing those colonies in a similar way then actually you know that kind of yeah motivated the, the kind of drive for independence so it was quite a big almost like u-turn for britain uh post 1945 to say that as the mother country that as they termed themselves come to britain to help (laughs) you know kind of like rebuild like help the mother country Mm. you know survive the destruction of world war ii and actually a lot of people did answer that call from the empire again maybe like you know vice versa we mentioned before that people in britain maybe might have gone to different parts of the empire for a kind of you know Uh, adventure of some kind it works the other way right like if there was a a call for people to come to britain people from other places might have thought of that as a you know exciting thing to go and do yeah 
But when they arrive in Britain, they're faced with um, a, a lot of problems, not not the kind of, you know, motherly love they may have expected. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think, like you said, I think you used the words, I think you really got the point there about this call, call to action. Um, and I think a lot of people from the colonies, especially the West Indian colonies, really... They, they couldn't wait to do anything uh, British-related. They wanted, you know, they saw a lot of these people had fought in the war. They couldn't wait to get to England. They they felt like they could really, they didn't feel like they were a Jamaican person or a Guyanese person coming to England. They just felt like a British person going home. Um, you know, their education system had been based on the, the Tudors more than probably their own Caribbean mm. history. And then the like propaganda, like we said before, would have had a big impact on that as well. Yeah, I definitely. Imagine. The you Buy know, Empire TFL, Trade yeah. Board and all of that, yeah. A TFL hired in, in Barbados and people came and, like you said, they got off the windrush. And I went to see uh, a play called Small, Small Island. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book. And I think it, it really gives a good account of, you know, expectations and then realism of being in England or Britain. Um, and I think... So, so what is that realism? What what did they... The racism Fun. was, yeah. was was you know, on the same level or even worse uh, to that that they had of the Irish, who were also, again, coming to England for the same reasons and had uh, been part of the empire in, in a similar way. I think, um, my, you know, my, my parents often tell me about when they came, uh, how people would put uh, poo in their letterbox on a, on a daily basis and you know you have the signs no blacks no dogs no irish and you know real struggle for housing and uh, inept conditions in the notting hill and clapham area where people were literally staying in um, underground bunkers by the tube next to the trains pretty much and i think people's expectations they couldn't believe it and i think they maybe something that we never really talk about is the mental health issues that a lot of these these people from you know I often speak from the West Indian experience had when they came to England because it couldn't have been nice when you have all your really big expectations you move your whole family you probably don't have the money to buy, go back to your native country and then you're not part of the empire and I think where I find myself and a lot of people second third generation is we don't have that experience I can access um, all the things that, you know, my grandparents probably couldn't and the discrimination that they had. I'm not saying that there isn't any because there definitely is, but a lot of those barriers are, are less um, of what they were now. But does that make a lot of the Windrush generation and um, their descendants feel British? I think you mentioned earlier about the idea of Britishness. Mm. Um, am I British? That was certainly a really enlightening interview. Uh, thanks very much to Ada Miller for sharing his personal experiences of post-colonial Britain. And join me next time for more historical talks and thoughts on History Time.